You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. We're in New York again this week talking to director Barry Jenkins, whose new film, If Beale Street Could Talk, saw its U.S. premiere at the legendary Apollo Theater. We catch up with Barry the morning after and take a deep dive into the craft of his latest. So sit tight. This is Playback. Christopher, <laughs> the director calls cut. <laughs> it's uh, mit out sound. <laughs> yeah, people don't know that mit out sound. <clears throat> oh, by the way, like hurricane. Have you got any family out there? Any panhandle? Uh, no, not in the panhandle. Yeah. I mean, my sister is in Georgia, and it seems like the thing's gonna curve up through Georgia. Maybe yeah. I don't know. A weird storm. I mean, they're getting weirder. All the time. That last one hit my family, and this one, my mother-in-law is <clears throat> in the panhandle. Yeah. It looks like a gnarly one. Yeah. It's just funny, because the other day I looked, and it was like a Category 1. I was like, oh, that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, I'm seeing like 140, 45-mile-per-hour gusts. It's crazy. Well, I'm here with Barry Jenkins, director and writer of uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Who is fresh off and, and looking fresh? By the way, I'm, I'm very, very not surprised, shocking, shocking. but uh, envious actually. <laughs> off this party and premiere last night at the Apollo. Thanks for doing the show again, man. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me, bro. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about last night premiere mm-hmm. at the Apollo Theater, uh, U.S. premiere. Really special night. Just tell me about it. Yeah, it was really wonderful. You know, James Baldwin was born and raised in Harlem. Uh, the book is set in Harlem. We filmed it in Harlem. Um, and so much of, and so much of Baldwin's family uh, still resides um, in the city. So it was really wonderful to bring the community, the family, um, Baldwin's family, and our film family together um, in this place where people could literally walk out their door and walk five blocks um, and be in this wonderful, wonderful cinema that I imagine Mr. Baldwin himself um, went to see shows um, when he was a kid. So, yeah, yeah, really wonderful night. I'm glad I can talk to you here, like, the day after in New York. I mean, it's obviously such a New York-centric tale. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what I love about this movie is, you know, first and foremost for me, uh, it's a Barry Jenkins movie. Like, after Moonlight, and I know this was part of the same mixture, like, you worked on the adaptation kind of the same time you were working on Moonlight, Mm -hmm. but... After a movie like that and the impact that it had, you know, you could have done, you could have gone a number of different directions, you mm-hmm. know, changed, your voice could have changed up. Who knows what happens mm-hmm. with that kind of success. So I love that you stuck to who you are so much, yeah. uh, particularly in the craft of it. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of um, kind of hard to get away from yourself when you work with so many people who've known you for so long. Yeah. So, you know, from James Laxton, Adela Romanski, uh, Nicholas Patel, you know, our cinematographer, producer, and uh, composer, you know, it's just all the same people. 
and kind of working the same muscles but applying it to a different story form. So, you know, the two scripts were written at the same time, Moonlight and Bill Street, and I kind of saw Bill Street as a companion piece of that film. Um, but I was happy and really excited to sort of broaden the spectrum of what we do um, and apply it to a story that I think ultimately will mean so much to so many people. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, uh, the companion piece element. Is mm-hmm. that uh, thematically, uh, formally? Like, what, what is it about that that you felt they were companion pieces? You know, to me it's thematically, you know, yeah. uh, largely. You know, uh, Moonlight is a story of a certain kind of black family. And I think there was a time where if you made a story that was about a black family, you were depicting the totality of the black experience. Um, And I think by having these two films, which are very different families, but I think they're still working in this way where you have these people who are trying to save their children, ultimately. Um, I think they go hand in hand. And for me, it was a really uh, wonderful privilege, a very privileged opportunity to really just paint, you know, all these different swatches on what I feel is like the quilt of the African-American experience, you Mm -hmm. know, at least my commentary on it. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty impossible to secure these rights, right, (laughs) for James Baldwin books? You know, it it was funny. I love that I didn't have to say that from the stage, that the Baldwin (laughs) family got up and they they gave themselves a bit of guff for how (laughs) difficult it is to secure the rights to, uh, to Mr. Baldwin's work, you know, as it should be. You know, Baldwin is... A literary titan, and I think you should have to prove yourself to walk through those those pearly gates. Um, and what I love about this experience of working with the Baldwins is, anytime they speak about this adaptation or working with me or working with Adela, they never mention Moonlight. It's always medicine for melancholy, hmm. um, which is you know this fifteen thousand dollar. You know, it does make me feel good, but it makes me feel. It makes you feel good about them yeah. because it wasn't this thing where, okay, let's wait till the rest of the world takes notice of you and then we'll take notice. It was like, no, you know, it took us a while, but, you know, we're still going back to this thing you made in 2008. And we mm-hmm. saw enough in that to feel you could do justice to this. So a yeah. uh, really, really wonderful thing. So why this book? Uh, you know, if you is, is this the one that just spoke to you the most out of his... You know. No, no. I would say Giovanni's room definitely is yeah. the one that spoke to me the most. Um, but again... To my enter, back here, by the way. There you go. <laughs> to, to enter the gates. I feel like there was no way I could enter and, uh, and secure that bag. So, um, you know, but, but more, more truthfully, um, like I said, it's companion piece to Moonlight. And at this time, I was sort of kind of wrestling with, with my family, with the way I grew up, and then meeting friends who grew up in other kinds of ways. And I felt like this book in particular, as far as Baldwin's... Uh, bibliography goes, it kind of pairs his more protest, protest novel, his protest, the essayistic quality in his work with this very, very deep, lush sensuality um, and an affinity for romance. Mm -hmm. And the romance in this book, and I think in the film also between Kiki and Stefan, is so pure. It's so, it has so much possibility. And then, on the other hand, you know, when we get into these things, the issues the family is facing and the issues that Fani is facing in particular, you see that many things are impossible um, just because of the circumstance. And to have those things painted with the same brush, spoken in the same voice by Baldwin in his novel, I was just like, wow, I mean, it's going to be difficult, but, you know, I got to get that. Yeah. Uh, I've never read If Beale Street Could Talk, and I was going to, but she said, eh, it's, a, it's a faithful adaptation. So it is a faithful adaptation, you know, but, with the exception of the last five minutes, yeah. Tell, I was going to ask you, what, what did you change and, and why? Um, the book, 
I mean, one, a book has so much interior uh, dialogue. You really get inside the characters. And so in a film, it's a lot of what happens. You know, how it feels, but this happens and this happens and this happens. And I think the magic is in translating to the audience how a thing feels. Seeing the characters emote is what gives it the depth um, that you would normally get in a novel by reading the interior sort of like life of the character. I say all that to say the way the book closes, just in story beats... It's very, uh, very truncated. You know, it, it kind of leaves you almost like in the middle of an inhale, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I just felt like for an audience to go through the things they go through in this film, the highs and the lows, you meet these characters and the romance, their love for each other is so vibrant. The love for the family uh, for them is so vibrant that to not give an audience just some kind of definitive, conclusive uh, emotion um, situation, uh, circumstance mm-hmm. to close out the piece, it felt like it wasn't fair. Because yeah. in this medium, because we don't have, you know, 100 pages of interior voice, um, I felt like we needed to just give a little bit more. Yeah. And so we extended the ending of the novel, is what I'd say. Okay. Uh, I listened to your podcast with Justin Simeon a few months back, which mm-hmm. was great. And uh, you were talking about, you know, your experience, your early experiences with Baldwin. So I just kind of wanted to pick up on that. Like, what what was your earliest experiences with his work? How did you come to his work finally? Yeah, I was uh, I was told, demanded, I was uh, forced to read Baldwin uh, by an ex-girlfriend who, in the process of breaking up with me, recommended uh, I, I get into James Baldwin uh, to expand uh, my, myself, um, I see now. Uh, and the first books I read of his were Giovanni's Room uh, and The Fire Next Time, which I think was really smart of her because it's nonfiction um, and fiction. And so you get both voices um, of Baldwin at once. And I honestly had not heard of him uh, at that point. You know, my... Uh, education, you know, was not that of, uh, of of most of my peers, or my peers now, I should say. Uh, and so I didn't know who, who the man was. And it was just a rude awakening to see that somebody looked like me, was from a situation somewhat similar to mine, you know, uh, the working poor, I would say, um, could still go through, the, move through the world and observe it in a way and then create the language within himself to replicate that world, you know, in feelings and themes and emotions that someone like me could read it and identify and that anybody could pick it up and read it and identify because Baldwin wrote about America more than anything else, um, critically and lovingly at the same time. So, yeah, man, it was super, super eye-opening. And it's why, you know, when I took this trip, I guess it was five years ago now, um, to start hopefully the process of getting back to my career I knew James Baldwin had to be a part of it mm-hmm. what was she specifically trying to instill in you you think by, by recommending that um, I think that I had a very narrow view of, of what a man could be mm-hmm. I had a very narrow view of what a black man um, could be and I think I had a very naive view of what America uh, was and I think her and especially because she, she could have given me any book any novel to read first in Giovanni's room um, is a novel, you know, about two men um, and a love affair. And it was the first time I'd read any queer literature, the first time I'd read, you know, anything uh, featuring a gay character. Um, the first time I read, you know, a lovemaking scene between two men, you know, just all these first experiences. Um, and what was so key about that was 
you know, those experiences in a certain way uh, mirrored experiences I had had, you know, in in my life. And so I was identifying with these characters who I assumed I was not able to identify with. So I think it was just her way of getting me to open my worldview. And yeah. she was absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, formally, you know, the first thing you pick up on in this movie is just the elegance of the craft. Uh, first shot is amazing. I love, you know, the costumes in that shot are so interesting because it's inverse. It is inverse. Yeah, you yeah, get yeah. blue on yellow and yellow on blue mm-hmm. between the couple. And, uh, you know, color is a huge part of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, film school buddy Alex Bickle, your colorist, actually. So good, man. Yeah. So good. Tell me about the use of color in this film. You know, it was just like with Moonlight, because these are our companion pieces. I think this film looks very different than Moonlight. It's a bit brighter and a bit more saturated. But, you know, like I said, this is a pairing of the protest novel, the essayistic aspect of Mr. Baldwin's writing, but also really leaning into the sensuality and the romance. And we didn't want the protest aspect, you know, these very dark, heavy things that the movie is sometimes dealing with, to overwhelm and overshadow this very pure, pure, lush depiction um, of romantic love. And so it felt appropriate to lean in to some of these brighter, more more beautiful colors. One, in the book, uh, this, this is, I think, maybe more than any other Baldwin novel that I've read, and I need to reread them, but he really goes into detail describing how things look. You know, it's like a really specific uh, voice he applies to describing the way a fabric feel, you know, what a character is wearing, you know, how the light is hitting a certain thing as these characters meet, you know, on Lennox Avenue. So um, we took our cues from Baldwin, and as we got into post and actually in pre-production, working with Mark Freeberg, our production designer, Carolyn Esselin, James Laxton, the cinematographer, we would all get together at Mark Freeberg's house, and we would just compare notes. We would put up swatches. And I think we sort of realized that we were working our way towards a more, a more bright, saturated palette. You know, it's interesting. A friend watched the film and said, it's crazy because I know it's the early 70s, but, you know, when I watch it, it kind of feels like the 1950s. And I'm like, yeah, because I think the 1950s are the last time we can really look back and think of Americana in this way that was just purely innocent. You know, mm-hmm. when you think of, like, the golden age of Hollywood, you know, all these... Douglas Sirk and, you know, uh, Mr. Minnelli, you know, all these really big sweeping films, you know, they're kind of from like the 50s, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the era you think of. And I think because the love in this film, you know, and also in the novel between the two characters is so pure, almost like naively pure, that's the era that it it recalls for people. It's like the Technicolor era. Exactly. Um, And that wasn't our intention, you know, I think that's what's vibing through the characters, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Freeberg, man, one of the greats. Uh, way to tap him mm-hmm. for this. Uh, I, I almost found myself wondering, with with colors being so accented in something like this, if expressionism was at all in play. Mm-hmm. It was. It was a, a little bit. I mean, that's you'd have to talk to Freeberg about that stuff. <laughs> um, you know what I love about working with Mark is, you know, he's very open. Like for example, you know, we couldn't really drill down and go. It's 1973. Every day, every frame, everywhere you look. You know, I was like, one, because we're jumping, you know, back and forth. You know, uh, the linearity is a bit um, is a bit uh, skewed in the film. Sometimes Tish is speaking of the present moment. Sometimes she's thinking of a moment from five years ago. Sometimes the kids in the bathtub, which is eight years ago. As so I said to Mark, you know, let's be fluid, you know, and let's just try to evoke a feeling. You know, let's 
definitely have fidelity to the period, but let's evoke a feeling. And I think this idea of a more ex- expressionistic uh, approach to uh, the visuals uh, was something that the four of us, myself, Mark, James, and Carolyn, started to hit on. And it's not in every scene, but I think there are sequences where that dynamic does come to the surface. Yeah. You got to keep going with the bathtub scenes, by the way, man. No one films bathtub scenes like you do. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful shots. Yeah, it's all about real bathtubs. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and the tile, you know, that just you know, it looks like a bathtub in my grandma's house or something. It's just kind of beautiful work. You know, it's funny. We went into this brownstone that was about to be flipped. You know, mm-hmm. gentrification one hundred and one, yeah. and had them pause the flipping, and we gutted the place except for the bathroom because all this stuff was still as it probably was. And I don't know, nineteen fifty-five was the last time the bathroom had been updated, and so we just left it as is. Everything else we gutted, but that is how we walked in. The tiles were there. I mean, that window was there. The lights coming through. Um, you know. The beauty of making the film um, in Harlem, even though it's a period piece and you can't turn your camera anywhere, but if you turned your camera somewhere that was still period correct and everything was there, just all this patina, all this just this just stuff that you just can't write into a script. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all just there. And you mentioned something last night that he he had this idea that you know the people that move in here after can say hey. They, they, what was that? Yeah, you know, it, it, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't Mark's idea, but this is how Mark pitched oh, okay. uh, pitched the idea for the people who were flipping the brownstone to pause their flipping, so we could get in, gut it. You know, we'll do the gutting for you, and then Mark, you know, built it like a, like on a soundstage, but in an actual Harlem brownstone uh, to make it better for the camera and things like that. And his pitch to the guy who had bought the building was, you know, and then you can tell people that this James Baldwin novel was filmed in this place. And the guy was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, cool. I think that's worth waiting two months." That's kind of brilliant. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the score, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were talking about it last night as well. Uh, just kind of. Uh, the, the music that was composed for different instruments, yeah. but then played with different instruments. Yes, yeah, you know, my second time working with uh, Nicholas Bertel, who also did the score for Moonlight. And, you know, Nick is really great. He starts composing music to the script. And so he'll start composing even before we have an assembly. And we often start with an intellectual idea. On Moonlight, it was about chopped and screwed, you know, this the southern hip hop style that we apply to the orchestral score in that film. And this one, it was about this element of jazz. You know, Baldwin was a jazz man, blues man also, but but more so uh, a jazz man. His father was born and raised in New Orleans. And so we thought, oh, this is going to have like some kind of jazz orchestral fusion score. And we just started with that idea. And the first pieces that Nick sent me were, there was this lovely uh, song um, when Tish and Fani are walking down the street in the rain and the camera's pushing behind them with the umbrella. That was like the first piece of music that Nick wrote. But then he also was composing a lot of things for brass, you know, like trumpet, saxophone, uh, French horn. And those things were super, super jazzy and like a direct bullseye of if you make a movie about black people in this time period, it's got to have jazz. (laughs) And what we realized was that the idea, it was too, there was something that wasn't round enough, you know. It was all 90 degree angles, you know, applying that element of the score to the film. And so instead we thought, well, I think our heart is in the right place, but let's do this. So Nick was writing for horns but we were playing it with cello Mm. and playing it with violins. And that then became this thing that I think is very us, but still in the spirit of jazz. 
And what I love about working with Nick is he's really, I said this last night, he's really good about showing me how the sausage is made. And so if we hit on a cue, he will then send me every instrument in that cue as his own separate track. And oftentimes what will happen is I'll go, oh, I feel like this thing that's in the seventh position of the eight instruments, there's a track with this one in the first position because I'm feeling this wavelength from this instrument, from this note. And I think now at this stage in the film, it's ready to step to the forefront. And so as you watch the movie, you'll notice in the beginning, it's strings up front and the brass and back. But then the last three or four cues, you know, when Sharon gets off the plane in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, you hear that horn. Mm-hmm. Bah! Yeah. The horns start to assert themselves. And so it was this really wonderful process of taking an intellectual idea and applying it to the film and arriving at a place where, you know, the music is Bill Street. You know, it's the score for Bill Street could talk. It's not yeah. us applying things to the film. It's the film manifesting itself through music. How about the uh, the melody of the overall theme that you came up with? I mean, what were you looking for musically, mel- melodically, with something like that? You know, it was it was something that could be that could reflect the duality that I found in the book. You know, it needed to be a bit lush and romantic, but also, unfortunately, there needed to be this tinge of melancholy. You know. Everything is possible, and yet for these people in this particular time, in a certain way, there's a ceiling on that possibility because no matter how far, especially in this era and when the book was written, uh, no matter how, how far you progress, you're always just one systemic hiccup away from being flattened. And so I wanted it to have this duality of the very lush romance, but also this kind of foreboding sort of melancholy and so as you watch the film actually this is one of the really cool things about the score and what Nick is really 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 stringent about is it's the same melody whether you're in one of the darkest moments in the film like the scene with Brian Tyree Henry Mm -hmm. with Stephon James I was going to mention that it's it's cranked way down there it's cranked way down way down but it's the same song that plays when Tish and Fonny first make love you know but we've just taken it this thing that can mean so much and be so beautiful and so tender can also be so, so foreboding. Yeah, you know, very ominous. Extremely, As soon yeah. as he comes into the movie, by the way, now I want to talk about the actors because, mm-hmm. and I want to start with him because I, I knew when I saw the movie the first time that he was amazing, and it just really hit again the second time. He is stunning yeah. in this scene, and it's the scene of the movie to me. Yeah. Uh, and it's I right love what midpoint. he had to say about it, too. It's right at the midpoint yeah. of the film, and so... All these things that you see that are possible for Fani, Brian walks into the movie and you see, oh, but this is more likely where he's going to end up. Um, and yeah, I, I love his performance. I think it's a wonderful, just a wonderful uh, expression. You talked about expressionism earlier. You know, I think in those 12 minutes, you know, Brian just runs the entire spectrum yeah. of, you know, I, I tell the story of. You know, when two black men meet on the sidewalk, as these two characters do in the film, oftentimes... Such a great moment, by the way. Just that hug. I'm like, I want to be a part of this hug. Yeah, you know, we have fun (laughs) doing that one. And and again, making a period film in Harlem, you know, it's one of the few blocks where you can point the camera anywhere, and it's all patina. Um, But when two black men meet on the sidewalk, it's often like, you know, how you doing? It's like, oh, I'm good. You Mm -hmm. know, and it often goes, I'm good, and after an hour, but I'm good, and actually... I'm not that good. Yeah. And this sequence was about just seeing these two uh, young men go through all these stages of really revealing themselves and negotiating the space between them to the point where Brian, I think, 
is holding in, you know, the score for that song, that, that scene is called PTSD, which is what Nick mm-hmm. and I named uh, the piece of score there, where Brian is withholding, you know, all this weight, you know, all this dead energy, and he wants so desperately to share it with someone. And I think that sequence is about creating the space where he could. And I think filming the scene functioned the same way about creating the space where Brian, who was only on set for a day, where he could come in and have the space to go through that that wave, that arc of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really proud of the work he did. Yeah. Was that a heavy day then on set? It was and it wasn't, man. That was, it was day 26 of our 32 days, our last day filming in Harlem, up on the soundstage in Yonkers. And what... I loved about that day was, and this is why maybe someday I'll get to make a 60-day or 70-day film, is the crew was just in. Mm. I mean, they were just in. And so if you notice, we shot the first half of that scene twice. We did it just like you and I across the table, OTS, OTS medium, you know, all that. And then it was just so fluid, the interplay between them, that we reset and put the camera on sliders. And we just started panning back and forth, back mm-hmm. and forth. And then for the second half of the scene, we flipped the line, went to the other side of the table, where now uh, Brian's in the dominant position mm-hmm. and Stefan is listening. And then we did that on sliders. So it, it wasn't a very heavy day on set because everybody was so fluidly mm-hmm. like in the moment. And as Brian said, it's a very small, small space. I mean, hats off to Mark Freeberg. He built it to spec. It's a basement flat that a guy who doesn't have, like, a good job can afford. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a small space, but it just felt like they were the only two people in the room. And so I don't don't even remember the difficulty of the day. You know, we were just working. It was an amazing scene. Thank you, Ben. Uh, thank you for introducing me to Coleman Domingo last night. That guy is fantastic. You ever have any money? <laughs> money. <laughs> he, told, he told me you said that to him at the party. It killed me, man. I just I love the way he intones that. Uh, you, you know, one of the things with casting this film is, you know, it's a faithful adaptation. In, in the sense that 90% of the dialogue I did not want to change from the novel. There were a few things I changed here and there. Um, but I wanted people to speak in the way Mr. Baldwin wanted them to speak. And so when you cast actors, you know, they have to be able to take those words and kind of soften them a little bit. And I think Coleman is just so gifted at taking language and making it sing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many very subtle, delicate lines that he delivers, and they just land with this force, you know, without being sledgehammers. You know, yeah. just a really awesome performer. He's amazing, too, at looking like he just had a very satisfying meal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and smoking cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. And looking like he just smoked the best tasting cigarette in the world. And looking like a glass of cognac, <laughs> like the biggest reward in the world. Yes. Um, but, yeah, let's talk about just the cast overall. Uh, mm-hmm. Finding these two, finding Fani and Tish. Uh, you talked about it last night, but let's, let's get into the specificity of each character and, and what you needed to do to find these these actors. Yeah, man, I think I always approach casting as though it's a, it's a meritocracy, you know, uh, within reason, I guess I should say. And so I, I don't have an idea in my head of who the actor is when I'm, when I'm writing the script, and I'm hoping an actor will come in and reveal to me, you know, this, this other layer of who the character is. And so, you know, we cast a wide net, you know, working with Cindy Tolan, who's amazing. You know, she discovered Jason Mitchell and Straight Outta Compton, and she's a really awesome woman who just dug and dug deep. And when Kiki's tape um, came in, I just saw this thing that I felt when I read the novel, which was this, I keep using the word duality. You know, I think Tish has two voices um, in the book and also in the film. She's at once this very pure, innocent, almost naive young girl. But because of what she's going through, she has to very rapidly evolve um, into a woman. And in the narration, she's speaking somewhat 
um, from the future. You know, she's speaking with this almost referential um, tone, and so there had to be a more seasoned voice, you know, in the same the same actor. And Kiki just just had all those things, you know. And there was something about her face, you know. We do these close ups. There was just something about her face that was just so open that I felt like even though she's looking directly at the audience, they would feel invited in mm-hmm. and they wouldn't feel um, that they were being pushed away. And then Stefan James, um, I mean, that guy's eyes are just like galaxies. Um, <laughs> and so when his tape came in, I'd seen him in Selma, I'd seen him uh, in Race, and honestly, didn't con- I didn't think, oh, Stefan James, funny, right? It didn't click. But um, he was in L.A., we sat down, we had a meeting, and we just talked about the character. And I realized he had ingested the book. And there's something in this film where that character is speaking. The majority of his scenes are spoken through glass. Mm-hmm. And I'm a person that really believes in barriers in cinema. That's why sometimes we remove all the distance between the audience and the actor and have them look directly at the camera. And Stefan James, Fani, his performance, a lot of it is through glass, which is another barrier. There's the lens, there's glass, and then you meet the actor. And I wanted someone who, just through looking at him, the audience could really connect with what I describe as his soul. So the two of them, man, we got them together. The chemistry was popping. And then it was just about building families around them, which is where we landed on Regina King, Coleman Domingo, Anjanou Ellis, Michael Beach. Just all these amazing, I'm doing air quotes now, character actors who I've grown up watching and have always known were so damn talented. And it just felt like if I can put all these people in a room and surround our young folks, you're going to get something really explosive. And, you know, the first 30 minutes of the film, when these two families are sitting in the same room, I mean, last night, I mean, was beyond explosive. What a scene, It's just fireworks popping. Oh, my gosh. And Regina, obviously, her name hit the screen and everyone just burst into applause. I mean, she is is the MVP for a number of people, I think, in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also just having such a great moment in her career, I think, you know, fresh off yet another Emmy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think she's going to be in the thick of things with this film as well. You know, know, it's interesting with her because I just randomly went and looked looked up her, her IMDb, and... I was shocked at how long it's been since she's been in a feature film. Mm-hmm. You know, she's done so much television. Um, and I think because of that, you know, when her name comes on, comes on the screen, everybody's, you know, fallen in love with Regina King over the years. She's played so many amazing characters, um, but not in the feature realm. And it w- wasn't something that occurred to me, you know, in the casting process. I was just looking for a fantastic actress who after an hour and a half you know after 80 minutes of spending all this time with our two young leads now the movie is just going to be handed over you know Mm -hmm. to this woman you know Mm -hmm. for the next 15 minutes you know in a country in a setting that we've not been uh, living in and and featuring satellite characters who we've not seen before and it's all on mama's shoulders and I felt like Regina was someone who could carry that off but I was talking with her last night and we were talking about this idea of her doing all this television and she was like, you know, you know, Barry, you know, it's amazing what's happening right now, but you know, you have to really step back, you know, and look at who you're talking to. You know, the roles for me were in this other realm. And when this came my way, I was just so just so moved at the opportunity to come back, you know, and do things that that I think are of the caliber of yeah. what she's been doing in television. Because I'm not giving, not throwing shade at the television work, you know. That's where a lot of these, again, air quote, character actors, <laughs> you know, have gone to yeah. get to get material they can sink their teeth into. And I think I'm just, I feel so fortunate that she decided to come back to features for us. 
Yeah, and it, it is such an interesting thing that it suddenly there's this whole chunk of the film. It, it kind of it just a lot of the film breaks with, I guess, norms when it comes to progression of story. I, I love I love like when you explain the history of uh, the Puerto Rican woman and how that's Victoria Rogers. Yeah, just as like almost like a newsreel kind of thing or something, mm-hmm. and it's it's just really interesting formal things you're playing with. Yeah, I, I think we. We should allow ourselves the freedom to do those things, yeah. you know. Um, I'm always trying to find a balance between I don't want to be antagonistic to the audience because, you know, right now film and television, you know, cinema uh, and media are the dominant story forms. You know, people are reading less books, unfortunately. People are reading less news, unfortunately. They're watching the news, you know. They're watching books. That's why there's so many adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of that, we've streamlined what the story form is. Right at the moment when we should be expanding what the story form is, because there's so much opportunity, so many different places to tell these stories. You know, I'm, I'm excited about Netflix's Choose Your Own Adventure. You know, mm-hmm. I'm excited about Amazon's Choose Your Own Adventure. You know, just really expanding, um, you know, the boundaries of what's an acceptable story form. And so this novel is written way more radically than the story form of this film. <laughs> Trust me, bro. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to hold on to some of the more radical nonlinear aspects of the way Baldwin tells a story. Because, look, if you really pare this book down, it's kind of Baldwin doing a procedural, mm-hmm. which is like a really weird concept. Yeah. But he does it in his way, which mm-hmm. is always going to be radical in form. Um, and I was just I just feel blessed that Annapurna, you know, had our back, you know, because you could just go A to B to C to D. But that wasn't as interesting, you know, as leaning into this idea of Tish's consciousness, you know, her evolution as a woman kind of dictating where the story wants to go. Yeah. Uh, just to move off the movie for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, I had Damien Chazelle on the show a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Who I ran into in Toronto, man. It was, oh, did you? Yeah, it was wild. It was like the first photo shoot we went to in Toronto. It was at IMDb of all places. And I walk into the lounge and I look on the screen. First, I saw his publicist because, I, you know, we just did. We were so, I mean, you know how yeah. it is. Yeah. That you start to, you see the publicist before you see the person. And uh, I gave her a hug. And then I looked up on the screen and saw that Damien was sitting for the interview I was about to sit to. And so, of course, all the phones came out and, and he came from behind stage and we both looked at each other and we knew okay obviously we're going to give each other a hug but we also knew people were going to ask us to take a photo yeah. uh, and so we did a little impromptu uh, photo shoot I haven't seen First Man yet but I've heard amazing things it's, yeah. it's fantastic so I, I didn't even let you ask a question no 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 I, I, yeah. I, when I had him on the show I asked him this and I told him don't worry I'm going to ask Barry the same mm-hmm. thing in a couple of weeks but just couple of years removed from that moment at the Oscars like where's your head at how what do you when you think back of it what do you, you think you know it's fun I'm doing better about it yeah. you know there was a period um, as recently as early this year when it was still really bothering me yeah you know um, you know the Academy was really kind they offered us um, a little something at the, the, the last award show and I just wasn't ready you know um, you know, I even I went to Palm Springs to watch the ceremony, mm-hmm. um, in which my friends told me, "Yeah, that's PTSD, bro." <laughs> <laughs> um, but now thinking back on it, especially you know having spent some time with Jordan and having just run into Damien, you know, unfortunate, but I think ultimately kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, kind of a beautiful thing in the sense that one, I think more people are going to go and watch this film because of what happened at the Oscars with Moonlight. Certainly, more people saw Moonlight. Uh, mm-hmm. Because of what happened um, at the Oscars, it was some people who were on the fence, uh, some people who maybe saw it and wanted to share it. I've been told the story personally. People who saw it saw themselves in it, 
and were afraid to share it with their family or with their or with their parents. After the Oscars, we're like, okay, now you have to sit down and watch this movie with me because I have something to tell you. Yeah. you know? So I think it's, uh, as I've heard Damien describe it as bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree. It was wacky as hell. Mm-hmm. I realize now because I recently finally, I'd, I'd watched it once near when everything happened. I recently sat down and went to YouTube and, <laughs> and watched it and then read like five comments and then stopped watching, stopped reading the <laughs> Never comments. Never read the comments on YouTube. Um, but it was... Um, just a really strange, strange thing. Now when I think about it, I think about the run-up to it, especially now being in the early stages um, of this process. Um, I know nothing could ever be like that process, could ever be like that process. But I just think about, man, the family of us. You know, There were times where I'd be at the airport and then Herschel would be there and then Andre would show up and we would all just like just sit down and just look at each other and be like, man, is this happening? Um and I think because of how everything happened at the end, even that night afterwards, it was just like splinters. I don't remember the group being together. I yeah. was just pulled in eight different directions, you know, always looking for Jordan or, or looking for Damien just because we shared something that I don't think anybody else can understand how it feels. Um, it's such a tough question to answer. I realize I'm just now, I've been very eloquent the whole time, and I'm just like rambling because uh, I think I'm still uh, coming to terms with it, but. Ultimately, I think being two years out from it feels much nicer than being two minutes out from it. Yeah. And I think that's the best thing I can say about it right now. Well, talking to you guys the morning after, I've told you before, it's one of the highlights of my career. You know what? That was... I got like an hour of sleep before that. Um, And I remember getting there and uh, Damien was like getting uh, some kind of Reiki massage or something. (laughs) And my publicist was giving me these oils just to like kind of calm us, you know? Yeah. and I, I do remember feeling like, again, as I just said, there's only like three or four people in the world who kind of know what I'm feeling right now. And Damien Chazelle was one of them. And so I thought, one, it was really lovely of him to extend the invitation. Because I don't know if anybody knows this, but, you know, it's Damien's cover. You know, and it was very kind of him and his people um, to say that he wanted to to share it. Um, and as you just said, the best part of that, and I mean, and we talked. You know, we talked in the official interview. He and I talked on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that was said this morning, that, that morning, that is in the article. But I think for us, there was some other important stuff that was said um, outside of it. Yeah. And I, I think had that not happened, I probably wouldn't have seen him for the next, like, eight months. You know, because he went right off into First Man. I went yeah. right off into Beale and Underground. And so it was really nice to have... Um, that moment to push out all the noise and just connect and realize this is a thing that happened to us, but this thing does not become us, you know, because, oh man, the, the social media got really ugly and the immediate after, I mean, you remember, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do very much. Yeah. I mean, emotions were high Yeah, and rightly so. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as I told him and I think I've told you before, no, no one else gets to say they had that kind of an experience. I mean, it's a, no. it's a, it's a, it's a singular moment in history Yeah, and, uh, it, you know, it's yours. So yeah. it's a beautiful thing. So you mentioned underground railroad there. Is that what's next for you? That's what's next. Yeah. 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 Um, we had a writer's room actually right before uh, we did early pre-pro on this and then I did a, a quick, like six week writer's room went off and made this. 
And now we've been writing scripts. Uh, and so early next year, we'll get on that. Good yeah. luck with that, man. Thank you, man. Amazon's been super supportive. We're doing, again, I mean, not as radical story form as this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're doing some really cool things. Like I said, there's so much possibility um, in story form right now. And I think uh, a company like Amazon is really leaning in to those possibilities with us. Because, I mean, you can't adapt Colson Whitehead and do it straight. You know? Yeah. you got you got to have the freedom to zig and zag. Yeah. Well, this movie is If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm not sure when we're going to publish this yet, but the movie comes out November 30th, and everybody should go see it because it's a beautiful piece of work. And congratulations to you, man. Thank you, bro. Really proud and happy for you. Thank you, bro. I appreciate it, man. Thank you again for doing the show. Much love, bro.